Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Uh, I was feeling like the episodes I had picked for the podcast, not all of them, but a lot of them, were trending toward the heavier side. Uh, I I went on a hunt to try to find something that would be more fun, and I really felt like I had seen something recently at JSTOR Daily that had been that magical blend of just, like, really interesting and really fun-sounding, and I went over there to look for it, and that is where everything went awry, because what I clicked on instead was an article about the use of tear gas against the 1932 Bonus Army. Um, we are approaching the end of July 2020 as we record this, and tear gas has been in use and in the news a whole, whole lot. So that is not a fun topic, but that is what wound up completely commandeering my attention. <laughs> I have been conscious that we've been doing a lot of dark things, so I keep trying to pick light things. And and then when you were like, I'm doing something light, and like the next day you were like, tear gas. I was like, Welp. <laughs> yep. And your your one that we're gonna be recording next in this session is also not one of the happier topics. We uh we just went down a path this week. It's a mix. It's, it is. It's a mix of kooky and serious. There's for sure some kookiness in your one. But here we are on tear gas. So tear gases, or lacrimator agents, are named for the lacrimal glands, which secrete tears. But tears are really just one small part of it. Exposure to most tear gases affects the mucous membranes and the respiratory system, and it also activates one of two pain receptors in the body. In addition to causing the eyes to tear up, tear gas can cause burning of the skin, eyes, mouth, and nose. I think sometimes people don't realize that uh, when they just see it reported on the news. It also causes blurred vision, drooling and difficulty swallowing, wheezing, shortness of breath, choking and chest tightness, rashes, as well as nausea and vomiting. Tear gas exposure is also associated with miscarriages, and in some cases, it can be lethal, especially in babies, elders, and people with conditions like asthma. The devices that are used to deploy tear gas can also cause injuries and deaths if they or their pieces hit someone. Yeah, even when that does not happen, it's it's like it's immediately incapacitating. It's it's not just something that, like, oh, your eyes are tearing up and maybe you want to move to right. fresh air. Like, I'm uncomfortable. I should walk away. It's like, no, you're downed. Right, right. So although all of these substances are grouped together and they're called tear gas, they're not really gases. One of the ones that's most commonly used today is CS, or 2-chlorobenzylidine mononitrile, and it is solid at room temperature. There's also CN, or chloroacetophenone, and that's also known as MACE. That's a crystalline substance that is propelled as a liquid or as a very fine powder. Pepper spray, or oleoresin capsicum, is an oily resin that's extracted from hot peppers. To be clear, it is not food. Uh, It's usually propelled as a pressurized liquid. And then there are other ones as well, including CR or dibenzoxazepine, and also refined versions of CS known as CS2 or CX. There are also various canisters and grenades and other devices that disperse these substances not as gases, 
but as aerosolized liquids or powders. And those liquids and powders can remain on the skin, clothing, and surfaces long after they have dispersed from the air. Tear gases that are used for things like riot control and crowd suppression today trace back to chemical warfare in World War I, which is something that was controversial from the beginning. Societies have made various efforts to establish rules for warfare throughout history. In terms of what we're talking about today, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a series of multinational conventions led to treaties that outlined various rules of war. One of the first of these was in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1868, resulting in a declaration that started with the idea, quote, that the progress of civilization should have the effect of alleviating as much as possible the calamities of war. More specifically, a declaration that was issued during the Hague Convention of 1899 nodded back to the sentiments that Holly just read from the Declaration of St. Petersburg. From there, this new declaration required signatories to, quote, agree to abstain from the use of projectiles, the object of which is the diffusion of asphyxiating or deleterious gases. Then on October 18th of 1907, another Hague convention stated that it was forbidden to, quote, employ poison or poisoned weapons. These directives grew out of a fear of chemical warfare that had grown in tandem with the Industrial Revolution and an overall really long-lasting taboo against poison and other chemical weapons as basically unfair and uncivilized. These treaties didn't stop nations from researching chemicals that could be used as some kind of weapon, though. France, in particular, had signed the Hague Declarations, but also developed tear gases for use in riot control. Then, in World War I, France used tear gas grenades to try to drive German troops out of the trenches at the Battle of Frontiers in 1914. Germany, which was also a signatory to these treaties, also tried something similar against Allied troops that October. Neither of these efforts was particularly effective, though, with the targeted troops not even realizing that they were under attack. So some sources do not count these as the first use of chemical warfare in World War I. So these and other early efforts sort of danced around the Hague Convention. The gases in question were meant to temporarily incapacitate people, not to permanently injure or kill them. On the other hand, the whole point of that temporary incapacitation was to leave the targets vulnerable to attacks with more conventional weapons. In April of 1915, at the Second Battle of Ypres, Germany moved in a different direction based on a strategy by chemist Fritz Haber. We just re-released our episode on Haber from the archive as a Saturday classic. Uh, This attack used a gas that was definitely deadly, but without projectiles involved, so it was technically still within the limits of at least the first Hague Convention. German troops waited until the wind was blowing in the right direction and then released nearly 200 tons of chlorine gas to be blown into Allied trenches. More than 1,000 Algerian, Moroccan, and French soldiers were killed. Thousands more were wounded. Both sides were just totally unprepared for this gas attack. The Allied troops had no gas masks, no other defenses prepared. I mean, why would they really? There, there had been some knowledge that something was going on, but still, like, not, not something of this scale. The German troops also were not ready to take advantage of how effective this attack had been. So while the Allied death toll was high, they didn't actually lose a lot of ground after this attack. The international community 
reacted to this use of gas with outrage. The attack, combined with Germany's sinking of the passenger ship RMS Lusitania and its invasions of Belgium and Luxembourg, which had been neutral, to solidify the idea that Germany's approach to the war was particularly brutal. In spite of that outrage and this overall perception that Germany's strategy was particularly nefarious in this war, Britain and France each started working on chemical weapons of their own. And in tandem, the warring nations in Europe developed new poison gas weapons, new gas masks and other protective strategies, new methods for deploying chemical weapons so that the targets would not be able to don that protective gear, and new treatment protocols for gas exposure. In spite of early efforts to sidestep the Hague Conventions with some of these weapons, pretty soon the armies are just totally ignoring it. They were developing projectiles for deploying gas, specifically deploying deadly gas, including artillery shells, mortars, and Livens projectors, which remotely launched drums of gas. In addition to the injuries and deaths that came from gas exposure, the use of chemical warfare in World War I was demoralizing and also disorienting. Troops had to remain in a perpetual state of fear and readiness. Gas masks were uncomfortable and they were not always effective and they blocked the wearer's peripheral vision. Sometimes the lenses fogged over as well. The gases themselves were also terrifying to experience as well as just to witness. By the end of the war, attacks with chlorine, phosgene, and mustard gases had caused at least 90,000 deaths and more than a million casualties. That's a small number compared to the estimated 20 million civilian and military deaths in the war total, but the deaths from the gas attacks were particularly horrifying. The United States was really a latecomer to all of this. Although the U.S. did start doing some chemical warfare research before becoming directly involved in the war, that was really a cobbled-together effort. Much of the nation's expertise with gas came from the Department of Mines, which had experience dealing with poison gases. A chemical service section was also established under the U.S. Corps of Engineers, and a gas service section was established with the American Expeditionary Forces. But in general, when American troops arrived in Europe, they just had very little knowledge or experience with chemical weapons. They had to rely on the other allies for information, training, and protective equipment. It's not really clear how much of this lack of preparedness stemmed from this overall taboo against chemical weapons, and how much of it was because news out of Europe was being censored before arriving in the U.S., so American authorities might not have realized just how much chemical warfare was really going on. In June of 1918, the Chemical Service Section became the Chemical Warfare Service. And the Chemical Warfare Service played a huge role in the development of tear gas for use in peacetime. We're going to talk about that more after a sponsor break. After the end of World War I, the U.S. started scaling back its military to peacetime levels, as, of course, other nations did as well, and at first, the plan was to disband the Chemical Warfare Service entirely. There was a perception, or maybe kind of a hope, that chemical warfare had been developed for this specific war, and that it was going to disappear now that the war was over, and that would make the CWS unnecessary. This general perception even went so far as to include soldiers abandoning or kind of 
fake losing their uh, gas masks rather than turning them in as they were released from service. This wasn't just a matter of wishful thinking. Even though both the Allied and Central Powers had used chemical weapons in the war, their use was still really taboo in much of the world. And then these taboos were bolstered by firsthand accounts from veterans about what the gas attacks during the war were like. Not everyone agreed with the idea that chemical warfare was inhumane or uncivilized, though. One supporter of chemical warfare was General Amos Fries of the Chemical Warfare Service. He had served with the gas service section during the war, and he had been awarded the French Legion of Honor, the British Companion of St. Michael and St. George, and the American Distinguished Service Medal. Fries thought that chemical weapons could be more humane than conventional weapons, and he believed that the United States would be unprepared again if it didn't continue to research and develop them. Of course, he also wanted to protect the service that he was working for. He thought that if he could convince the public that chemical weapons had peacetime uses and that they were safe and effective for those uses, that then it would destigmatize their use in war. He hoped that with that stigma removed, the public would allow and even encourage chemical warfare. That would mean that the Chemical Warfare Service would not just survive the post-war downsizing of the military, it would also allow for chemical weapons and the CWS to become a really central part of American military strategy. He imagined a military in which every unit had its own dedicated chemical squad with the most up-to-date advanced chemical weapons, as well as tactics and protective equipment all at their disposal. So, Freeze successfully lobbied for the military to keep the CWS. The CWS started a trade publication called Chemical Warfare, which published articles arguing that chemical weapons were less traumatic to the body and less lethal than conventional weapons. But of course, this all glossed over the fact that many of the chemical weapons that had been developed for use in World War I were formulated specifically to kill people. Fries rallied support from the American Chemical Society, professional chemistry journals, and various chemistry programs. He and his supporters also pushed the idea that all war was terrible, but that a lot of the resistance to chemical warfare specifically was just that people were not used to it yet the way that they were used to things like guns, artillery, and bombs. The CWS also looked for other uses for the gases that had been developed for the war, like home security systems that released a toxic gas when they were activated, or the use of chemical weapons to fight agricultural pests. After someone noticed that workers at a chlorine gas plant had fewer cases of the 1918 pandemic flu, they explored whether chlorine gas could prevent illness, especially lung infections. This involved intentionally exposing people to low doses of chlorine gas. One of the test cases was President Calvin Coolidge, who underwent three consecutive treatments from May 20th to 22nd, 1924. The president said that his cold got better as a result, although it should be noted that colds typically get better on their own. None of these proposed peacetime uses for chemical weapons really took off. What did take off, though, was tear gas. As we've talked about in several other episodes of the show, the U.S. and other places went through major social and economic upheaval after World War I. Strikes and other labor disputes were widespread, which we've covered on several previous episodes. So was mob violence, especially targeted against Black people and their communities, which we have also talked about in several episodes, including our episode on Red Summer. 
Starting in early 1919, Freeze and the Chemical Warfare Service started framing tear gas as the ideal solution for these types of unrest. However, the Department of War, which had been planning to dismantle the CWS, was not in favor of this. In February of 1919, the War Department ordered the CWS not to provide any type of chemical weapon, including tear gas, to any civilian or military law enforcement personnel. But at the same time, people and departments were petitioning the Department of War to be allowed to use tear gas on civilians. This included an October 1919 request to use chemical devices on striking steel workers in Gary, Indiana, and various requests from law enforcement who wanted to use it or have it on hand for so-called race riots. We've talked about why that phrase is problematic many times before. Even as the Department of War maintained that it would not allow chemical weapons to be used against residents of the United States, the Chemical Warfare Service was designing and testing devices to use chemical agents for crowd control. In 1920, the National Defense Act, which was also known as the Second Army Reorganization Bill, established a new organizational structure for the U.S. Army. And in addition to other things, this act formalized the Chemical Warfare Service as part of the Army. CWS Director William L. Siebert was reassigned, and he retired shortly after that. This is something that a lot of people interpreted as a punishment for the CWS having pushed back so hard against the Department of War's efforts to dismantle it. Taking his place was General Amos Freeze. To be clear, the CWS was still doing military work, including advocating for training, supplies, and a gas company for each overseas garrison. Freeze also continued to advocate for chemical warfare to be a standard part of every unit. But there was still a lot of focus on peacetime use of chemical weapons, as we said earlier, to try to sway public opinion on chemical weapons in general and to protect the CWS from being declared irrelevant in the face of that ongoing stigma and the potential for international treaties banning their use. This was in spite of the fact that the Department of War still wouldn't approve the use of chemical weapons on civilians. That last part changed in 1921 after Warren G. Harding was sworn in as president of the U.S. He appointed John W. Weeks as secretary of war. John J. Pershing became chief of staff that July, and Pershing was the person who had appointed Freeze to the gas service back during the war. Freeze started advocating for changes to how the Department of War was approaching chemical warfare specifically with civilians. And as part of this, Freeze arranged for a demonstration outside of Philadelphia in which about 200 police officers tried and failed to make their way through a cloud of tear gas. In August of 1921, Freeze conducted another demonstration, this time on a group of Girl Scouts from nearby Camp Bradley, one of whom was his daughter Elizabeth. The scouts took a tour of Edgewood Arsenal, during which they were exposed to tear gas. This visit was written up in the Washington Post in an article that read, quote, The girls found that the name tear gas was no misnomer, as all cried copiously for a few seconds when the gas was released. They greatly enjoyed the trip and put it down as one of the red-letter events of the camp. There's a lot that's not clear about this whole outing, but the general sense seems to be that tear gas was both effective and that it was safe enough to use on Girl Scouts. Yeah, this, this is there's, the weirdest PR stunt There's this whole thing. so me. much ick in that whole thing. I know. <laughs> I know, I tweeted about it, and people were like, that, excuse me? <laughs> what, 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 what were they even thinking? And I was like, I, 
they were thinking that they were trying to show the public that like, yeah, it's totally okay to, to tear gas little girls. Anyway, the War Department lifted its prohibition on the use of chemical weapons against civilians, but only for agents like tear gases that were not considered poisonous in August of 1921. This was in response to a request from the governor of West Virginia for help restoring order during an ongoing series of labor disputes in its mining industry. These series of disputes are something that we have covered previously in our episode on the Battle of Blair Mountain. During the first week of September 1921, the Chemical Warfare Service deployed soldiers and prepared an assortment of CN gas devices from Edgewood Arsenal, including 1,000 grenades, 350 mortar shells, and 191 aerial drop bombs. By this point, tear gas was also available from private manufacturers. The first of these was called Chemical Protection and was established in 1921. So while tear gas was used against the miners in the Battle of Blair Mountain, it wasn't by these federal troops. It was by a force rallied by mine operators and the local sheriff. The miners mostly surrendered after the federal troops arrived, before the weapons from Edgewood Arsenal were used. Freeze did take the opportunity to test some of their tear gas weapons after this, and the CWS used the results of those tests to publish Provisional Instructions for the Control of Mobs by Chemical Warfare, which came out in 1921. The Department of War reinstated that prohibition on tear gas against civilians not long after this. Freeze and the CWS and various trade publications kept on with their PR efforts to try to sway opinions about tear gas. This included a November 26, 1921 article in Gas Age Record, which described Freeze as, quote, firmly convinced that as soon as officers of the law and colonial administrators have familiarized themselves with gas as a means of maintaining order and power, there will be such a diminution of violent social disorders and savage uprisings to amount to their disappearance. Uh, A lot of the language in these PR efforts was racist. (laughs) Like, a lot of it was about maintaining the power of colonial authorities over the people who had been colonized, with the colonized people being, like, savage barbarians. It was gross. The Chemical Warfare Service also cooperated with private businesses, giving chemical manufacturers samples of gases the CWS had developed and allowing these manufacturers to test their products at Edgewood Arsenal. The CWS also lobbied against international treaties that jeopardized its work, including the 1922 Treaty Relating to the Use of Submarines and Noxious Gases, which was signed by five nations but did not become binding because France didn't ratify it. Yeah, I think we've mentioned on the show before that with treaties, there's usually this two-step process where, like, nations sign the treaty, but then their individual governments have to ratify the treaty. Uh, And so this had been signed but not ratified. Although that 1922 treaty was worded in a way that uh, seemed to prohibit all chemical weapons, then public opinion continued to be on the side of an outright ban on all chemical weapons— Freeze and the CWS kept on making a case that tear gas and other so-called non-toxic gases were an exception. In August of 1922, the War Department again lifted the prohibition on the use of tear gas by federal troops and civil disturbances. By this point, tear gas was also becoming way more common in civilian law enforcement as well. As we mentioned earlier, the first private tear gas manufacturer had started operations in 1921. By 1923, police were equipped with tear gas in more than 600 cities around the United States. 
The Chemical Warfare Service's ongoing efforts to frame chemical weapons as humane also had another totally different outcome during these years. The U.S. saw its first execution by gas chamber on February 8, 1924. In 1925, the Geneva Gas Protocol prohibited the use of chemical and biological weapons in war. The U.S. signed the protocol, but didn't actually ratify it until 1975. It wasn't long before nations outside of the U.S. were also using tear gases to disperse mobs and suppress dissent. We'll talk more about that after a sponsor break. Word of American efforts with tear gas quickly spread to other parts of the world. I mean, other parts of the world had also been developing tear gases, but the U.S. effort on this was was large. In 1920, British authorities in India started lobbying to be allowed to use tear gas against the Indian independence movement. They cited the Jallianwala Bagh Massacre, also known as the Amritsar Massacre, which took place on April 13, 1919. At least 379 unarmed demonstrators were killed and more than 1,000 were injured after forces under Brigadier General Reginald Dyer opened fire on them. Advocates for tear gas use in India framed this as a tragedy that might not have happened if British colonial forces had less lethal weapons available to them as an option. The India office, on the other hand, insisted that since gas could not be used in war, it could not be used in peace either. Colonial authorities continued to request permission to use tear gas, and the India office continued to refuse into the early 1930s, at which point it allowed the use of tear gas, often called tear smoke because of the ongoing associations with gas warfare in World War I. That was only after announcements were made that it would be used if the crowd didn't disperse. From there, the use of tear gas started to spread to other British territories as well. At this point, Palestine was under British control under a mandate from the League of Nations. British authorities there started requesting tear gas in 1929 after riots and massacres that were connected to disputes over control of the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Finally, the High Commissioner of Palestine got permission to use tear gas to control riots, but only when it seemed as though the only other choice would be firearms. At first, this continued to be the mindset as other countries adopted the use of tear gas, that gas should only be used in circumstances where, without it, the only choice would be lethal weapons. But over time, authorities began thinking of tear gas as the first response, that it should be used to disperse crowds earlier rather than later. To return to the U.S. for a moment, by the 1930s, tear gas was part of the arsenals of police departments all over the country. But one of the earliest uses of tear gas by federal troops domestically in peacetime was on July 29th of 1932, and that's the bonus army that I mentioned up at the top of the episode. Congress had passed the World War Adjusted Compensation Act in 1924, and that act would allow World War I veterans to be compensated for wages that they had lost while serving in the war. They were supposed to be paid a dollar per day of stateside service and a dollar and 25 cents per day overseas. People who were owed less than $50 were paid immediately, and then for everybody else, that payout was scheduled with interest in 1945. However, the Great Depression meant that people needed their money a lot sooner than that. 
The Bonus Army, also called the Bonus Expeditionary Force, was a group of about 20,000 veterans, many with their wives and children, who went to Washington to demand immediate payout. When a measure to do so was defeated in the Senate, many of the Bonus Army went home. Those who didn't held increasingly vocal protests over the next few weeks until federal troops dispersed them using tanks and tear gas, burning down their encampment in the process. Two of the demonstrators were killed, and a baby reportedly died from tear gas exposure. This incident was a blow to the reputation of then-President Herbert Hoover, and it's been cited as one of the reasons he lost the election against Franklin D. Roosevelt. But the Chemical Weapons Service and Edgewood Arsenal called this clearing of the demonstrators a practical field test, something that showed the power of tear gas to disperse even the most dedicated dissenters with, at least in their view, minimal harm. Lake Erie Chemical even used photos of the clearing of the Bonus Army as part of its marketing materials. The popularity of tear gas really spread from there. Sales reps from American chemical manufacturers visited places, both domestically and internationally, that were experiencing unrest to sell tear gas to private citizens, business owners, and law enforcement. Various governments, businesses, and organizations also started stockpiling tear gas in case of future need. For example, between 1933 and 1937, $1.25 million worth of tear and sickening gas had been bought in the U.S. in anticipation of labor strikes. Of course, there were certainly times that tear gas was used because of actual crime or violence that was happening. But often, it was really just focused on suppressing dissent. Yeah, also that $1.25 million, that is 1930s dollars. That is not adjusted for modern currency. Chemical warfare didn't see nearly the kind of use during World War II that it had during World War I. Although chemical weapons were used in death camps uh, under the Nazi regime, in terms of combat use, it just was not present in the same way. But after the war, tear gas continued to be a primary tool for suppressing protests, dispersing strikers, and the like. Over the years, it also shifted again in how it was used. Back in the 1930s, tear gas had started out mainly perceived as a last resort, when the only other option might be firearms or other more lethal weapons. And then as we noted, it became more of a first line of defense, used early to disperse and demoralize a mob or other crowd. But by the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, it was being used as a precursor to other violence. For example, on Bloody Sunday during the Selma to Montgomery March in 1965, state troopers deployed 40 canisters of tear gas, 12 smoke canisters, and 8 canisters of nausea gas before then beating the marchers with their nightsticks and other weapons. This included fracturing the skull of the late John Lewis. The 1960s also saw some of the first uses of tear gas as more of an offensive weapon, including the use of a National Guard helicopter to spray demonstrators at Berkeley with tear gas in 1969. This, of course, also allowed the gas to drift to adjacent areas and affect people that had nothing to do with the demonstration, including children at a nearby preschool and people who were swimming in a university swimming pool. Obviously, this is not a comprehensive list of every time tear gas has ever been used or every nuance and how it has shifted, like, that's impossible in the scope of one podcast. 
Uh, but in the book Tear Gas, From the Battlefields of World War I to the Streets of Today, it describes the most recent shift in tear gas history as the year 2011, thanks to the combination of several things happening simultaneously, including the Occupy movement in North America, the Chilean student protests that started that year, the Egyptian Revolution of 2011, and the Arab Spring. All of this included what was described as the weaponized use of tear gas in Bahrain, which led to at least 34 gas-related deaths and numerous injuries from people being struck with the tear gas canister. Tear gas sales have tripled since 2011, with other high-profile uses since then being Turkey's Occupy Gezi protests in 2013, the Umbrella Movement in Hong Kong in 2014, the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, after police officer Darren Wilson fatally shot Michael Brown, also in 2014, and the ongoing protests against police brutality and racism in the United States. In some parts of the world today, people also describe tear gas as an almost ever-present fact of life, including in occupied Palestine and parts of Uganda and Nigeria. Proponents of tear gas generally maintain that it is safe when used correctly and that it's less deadly than other weapons, including firearms. But a lot of research to back up its safety is spotty at best. A lot of it was conducted by the military and the results of that research are classified. Some of this research has also come from experiments that were done on people without their consent, including in experiments that were conducted at Edgewood Arsenal in the U.S. and at Porton Down in England. One of the most cited reports on the safety of tear gas is the Hemsworth Report, which followed an investigation led by London doctor Sir Harold Hemsworth. This followed the Battle of the Bogside, which took place during the Troubles in Northern Ireland in 1969. During this incident, the Royal Ulster Constabulary fired more than 1,000 canisters of tear gas and other gas weapons into a densely populated Catholic neighborhood over the span of 36 hours. Residents fought back by throwing things like stones and Molotov cocktails. Yeah, they also threw back the tear gas when they were able to. Uh, after all this, a lot of people reported things like vomiting and diarrhea and other physical effects, some of them long-lasting. But Hemsworth really dismissed this testimony. He relied mostly on hospital records, and he didn't really take into account that most people would not fight their way through tear gas to get to a hospital for something like diarrhea or vomiting. He also didn't really factor in the fact that the nearest hospital staff were primarily unionists, while the neighborhood's residents were primarily nationalists. They were on the opposite side of the troubles. That seems like such a stupid thing to leave out of a I, data set. Like, it's really frustrating. Um, no, I don't know. Nobody came in. Well, because they'd probably be arrested, among other things, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. There's so many reasons not to go to the hospital while your neighborhood is being, like, assaulted with tear gas. Yeah. In addition to these shortcomings in this research and the lack of research into how tear gas affects people who are exposed to it over a prolonged period, there is so much footage from the last few years showing tear gas being used incorrectly. This includes firing tear gas projectiles directly at people, using large amounts of tear gas in a small space, and firing tear gas at people who do not have a path to escape from it. Yeah, literally just this morning before coming in here, I saw a video from last night from, like, a bunch of officers in protective gear restraining a protester in a cloud of tear gas. Uh, in addition 
to all of those things not being researched a lot. There's also just not a lot of research into the environmental effects of all of these things, especially when they're being used over a prolonged amount of time. Like, it's not a gas that just vanishes away, even if it were. I mean, there's a long-term cumulative effect of using a lot of it. Like, it's a it's a powder or a liquid that's landing on surfaces and washing into the, you know, the, the storm drain system. Like, all of that. There's just not a lot of research into the effect of any of that. To circle back around, though, to Freeze and the Chemical Warfare Service, today, that service is the Chemical Corps. It is charged with protection from weapons of mass destruction, including chemical, biological, and radiological and nuclear threats. And in spite of all of his PR work, Freeze was really not successful in shifting the general global opinion on chemical weapons. Chemical weapons in warfare are still banned. They're still regarded as uncivilized or barbaric. They're associated with terrorism. The 1993 Convention on the Prohibition of the Development, Production, Stockpiling, and Use of Chemical Weapons and on their destruction has 165 signatories. So far, it's been ratified by 65 states, which was the number needed for it to become binding. The agents that are used in tear gas are not included in its list of prohibited toxic chemicals and their precursors, though. Another nice, uplifting topic. Thanks, Tracy. I know. I, 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 know, I, keep, I keep doing it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know a lot of people, there are a lot of people that have been like, I, uh, I, I always, I always want to learn from your podcast. Whatever you want to talk about is fine with me. And then we also hear from people who are like, I listen to your podcast for fun. So, like, if you listen to our podcast for fun and you have been really brought down by my choice of topics lately. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I, I don't, I I feel like some of the stuff we've talked about is really important, but I also totally understand uh, when your pleasure listening takes a turn uh, into the more serious, I, you know. Here's what I keep reminding myself when I'm like, wow, we talk about a lot of heavy stuff lately because it is important. Listen, October's on the horizon, people, and I promise there's tons of there's tons oh, yeah, of Halloweeny sure. goodness coming. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of the podcasts I listen to for fun uh, have, understandably, like I mean, so many shows are like they they have been talking more about things that are related to the pandemic or the protests. Um, and I know that the, like with if it's my fun pleasure listening, sometimes I will just like leave that one for a little bit and come back to it later. Yeah. Which we are not going to be offended if folks do that. <laughs> Not even a little. Nope. Um, do do what you do. I mean, as I have mentioned before, I feel like I, I have so many advantages and privileges in this moment that we are in, and it is still incredibly hard for me to concentrate and get through my day. So whatever people need to do to keep themselves going in the midst of all that, I, just, I, I don't judge you for it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I have listener mail. It is from Kate, and Kate has written us about um, something that a lot of people have written to us about because I made a mistake, and I'm sorry. Uh, Kate says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I'm sure by now you're aware that you made the classic Idaho-Ohio-Iowa mix-up in your Pro Part 2 episode. Senator Frank Church, who led the Church Committee investigating abuses by the intelligence community, was a senator from the great state of Idaho, not Ohio. I apologize if you have received more spirited responses informing you of the classic mix-up. Us Idahoans are very proud of our history and Frank Church in particular. During Senator Church's long tenure in the Senate, he was a vocal advocate for preserving America's wilderness. He played a pivotal role in creating several protected wilderness areas across America and Idaho in particular. 
helped lobby for and establish the Hell's Canyon National Recreation Area, a canyon deeper than the Grand Canyon and straddling the Idaho-Oregon border. He also helped establish the Sawtooth Wilderness and National Recreation Areas, a sharp and jagged-topped mountainous area located close to Sun Valley, Idaho's world-famous ski resort. Finally, one of his biggest projects was establishing the River of No Return Wilderness Area. It was later renamed the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness Area in his honor. The area is the largest wilderness area in the continental U.S., spanning 2.367 million acres in east-central Idaho. Growing up in Idaho, I was so blessed to have the ability to explore all the public, state, and federal land open and available to me. I went to summer camps in the Sawtooth, whitewater rafting in the Frank Church Wilderness area, and stayed very far away from the edge of the cliffs in Hell's Canyon. It wasn't until I was older that I realized how incredibly lucky I was and that many other states and their citizens didn't have this kind of access to the great outdoors. Because the lands are private and visitors are prohibited in many other states, Idaho is special and unique, at least we think so, Idaho is so lucky to have advocates like Senator Church who fought to keep public lands public for the enjoyment of all. Idahoans' admiration for this may likely explain any strongly pointed corrections you may have received. I'm sorry on behalf of my fellow citizens. They are just as passionate and uncontrolled. Um, Kate has gone on to send some classic Idaho pronunciation mix-ups. I'm just going to gloss over those because I feel like if we read them now, then three years from now when I have forgotten this exchange ever even happened and we do it wrong, uh, people will like be like, didn't you read a thing about that before? Uh, it's tough. So uh, Kate says, thanks for all the fun, sad, thoughtful, and interesting podcasts you produce. They've brought me so much joy in learning over the years. Feel free to do an Idaho-inspired podcast anytime in your future. Sincerely, Kate. Uh, thank you so much for this note, Kate. We did get um, lots of notes about this. Thankfully, most of them have not been spirited <laughs> or unkind. Uh, I did just mess up the word in my head, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I messed it up in the outline. It wasn't even a case where... Um, it was right in the outline and it just came about out of our mouths wrong, which also happens on just a, a continual basis. Um, so anyway, I I am sorry I messed that up. <laughs> For what it's worth, like, uh, we discussed this, Tracy and I had this come up in a completely different way on a, like, a very casual chat call we were on a few days ago where there are just words people's brains flip. I will say April when I mean August almost every single time. Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> like the two A months just flip for me. And sometimes this causes very startled and panicked faces in meetings. But it's just because I never, my brain is really struggles with stuff like that. So there are always instances of that for everybody. Uh, I always try to just cut people slack because I know everyone's brain has a weird little peccadillo that sometimes does stuff like that. I also cut people slack on, like, the local pronunciations of things because, like... Oh, yeah. The, like, the way those pronunciations work is they sort of... Are, they signal to everybody whether you're from around here or not. And if somebody's not from around here, I just let it go. If somebody has just moved to around here, I might very uh, delicately let them know the right way to say it so that they're not embarrassed in the future. <laughs> Well, and then there's a third category for me, which is that, um, particularly in Atlanta, right, we have a street named after an explorer, <laughs> which in Atlanta we call Ponce de Leon. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> and when visitors come and they say, Pasa de Leon, it sounds so much prettier that I don't want to correct them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, recently, I was listening to one of my favorite other podcasts. I'm not going to say which podcast because I, I don't want anybody to like go give them a hard time. But they said the name of a Massachusetts town as it is spelled, which is Haverhill. But the way that Massachusetts town is pronounced is Haverhill. And when I heard them say it, I was like, oh, no, their Twitter mentions. Uh, I think I would even when to look, their Twitter mentions were not too bad. So anyway, I only know that because I live here. <laughs> anyway, thank you again, Kate. Uh, I am sorry for just like my total mess up in that particular thing. Um, oh, one other note I just wanted to note, because I feel like we've talked about our website a few times, but one thing we have not specifically said is we don't get any type of notification about comments that are left on the website. So if you leave us a comment on the website, there is a good chance we'll that we will not see, see it in it. a timely manner. Yeah. We might never see it. Um, email is a much better way to uh, to get in touch with us. And our email address is historypodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Uh, if you're going to email us and say, why don't you just turn the comments off? It's not in our power to do it. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. we did ask. Yeah. Uh, so History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're also all over social media at Missed in History. And that's where you'll find our Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast and the iHeartRadio app and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.